So I'm trained as an opera singer. Sometimes it's overwhelming. There's so much good work to do in the world. Fundraisers are beacons of light and hope, illuminating the path to the good work that needs to be done in the world today. Change happens at the rate of people and people change systems. All right, welcome to another great episode of the Dre and Smiley podcast. Awesome, Dre. I am super stoked to have Yolanda F. Johnson on our show. I found her on LinkedIn. And let me read her bio. Yolanda F. Johnson is a sought-after philanthropy, fundraising, and DEI expert, a trailblazing figure on the national landscape. She has developed strategies to raise more than $1 billion for nonprofits while also advising philanthropists and grant makers. With her, face as, with her faith as her guide, she is a champion of equity for women in the sectors of fundraising, philanthropy, and DEI. In addition to leading YFJ Consultings, LLC, Yolanda is a founder of WOC, Women of Color in Fundraising and Philanthropy, and of Allies in Action Member Network, Membership Network. Yolanda has also had an outstanding career as a performing artist. Wow, she's a singer. And she has used her black background as a performer to view fundraising and philanthropy through a creative lens. She is thrilled to be a founding member of the Women Philanthropy Alliance. Wow, it seems like you're hard, you're an angel. You give back a lot of philanthropy. <laughs> Please tell us, how did you how did you get into this this uh Amazing work. How did you get into philanthropy? Were you was that something you wanted to do as a young lady, as a young child? How did this organically begin? Organically, it began because of my life as an artist, but my entire career has had two distinct paths that connect um, and seg in certain different spaces and places with philanthropy, fundraising, and music. So I'm trained as an opera singer. When I was getting my bachelor's degree in performance, we had this just continuous closing of orchestras around the country. We called it like an epidemic. And it was financial mismanagement, um, artists who didn't quite understand the business side of things and the fundraising and philanthropy side of things. And so... I had a professor, I said, you know, if you're in dance, you can probably perform to pre-recorded music. I can't do a marriage of Figaro um, to a CD. I'm dating myself. To a CD. (laughs) (laughs) At least it's not to an eight track or something, but to to a CD, I can't do that. And he was like, well, what are you going to do about it? And I said, I'm going to make sure that Uh, I figure out the other side of the arts and how to keep it going. Uh, And it really taught me so much. I'm so grateful. So I did that performance degree. And then I went on to graduate school and did arts administration with a focus in philanthropy and in fundraising. And so the rest is history. I've been able to use performance practice to help people make asks personally and professionally. But it all started because I wanted to make sure that the arts um, was a healthy sector. And, and then I always even had a place to produce and create art. No, that's, that's, uh, I like that. We had on our, our podcast on, a guest on earlier, and he was uh, a wealthy individual, and he has his fundraiser. And he says, 
sometimes it's easier to make the money than it is to give it away because of all the business mm -hmm. side of it. And then I thought about Bill Gates when he, he gave 30 billion to Buffett for his nonprofit organization. So what would you say is a challenge with the philanthropy? Something that, that makes it challenging or difficult to give away money or to do good deeds with the money you raise? Well, I, I would surmise it's a couple of things. Um, and from my own experience as well, sometimes it's overwhelming. There's so much good work to do in the world that you just want to be everywhere. <laughs> you want to make sure that people aren't hungry. You want to make sure that people are educated. You want to make sure that there's racial and gender equity. You want to make sure nobody's homeless. And if you had all the money in the world and could do that, you would. But you have what you have. And with a grateful heart, you have to really prioritize. And so that's one of the things I do in my consulting practice is help philanthropists prioritize their um, you know, the good work mm. they want to do. So from the philanthropy side, it's surrounding yourself uh, with professionals who understand the ins and outs. And sometimes you need to set up the foundation. What's the entity look like? Um, you know, the most wealthy people can't find them because mm -hmm. <laughs> they don't want, they don't necessarily want to be found. They want their grant making mm. entity to be found, but they also mm. want to be able to have the freedom to navigate uh, without people always, you know, coming to them for areas that may not resonate with them. They, they wish those causes well, but they have their own priority. So understanding who you are as a philanthropist mm -hmm. and then surrounding yourself with the people who can help you move that forward, who can help identify the people who may be most in need and find those pathways to be able to help them in a meaningful way and in a way that doesn't prescribe. Mm -hmm. So Peggy Delaney Rockefeller said it best. I um, have a, a show actually in philanthropy where I interviewed her, Meet the Philanthropist. And that was really uh, a game-changing moment for me when she said, you know, I have a lot of wealth and I have a, a lot of things that I want to do with that. But she has learned to involve the communities. So that's a really community-based approach rather than a mm. white savior approach, rather than, oh, this is mm -hmm. what I want to do. And so I'm going to put that on you. That may not be mm -hmm. what the people need. And so you have to listen mm -hmm. and be curious and understand what people need and not prescribe what they need so that you can actually partner with them and provide it. Um, and then I think on the other side of things, we have to get away from the transactional model of mm. fundraising. And so stop seeing people as checkbooks and dollar signs and see them as individuals. I have a quote that I've become known for, two, two different quotes. And one is that, you know, fundraisers, are beacons of light and hope illuminating the path to the good work that needs to be done in the world today. And by that, I mean, don't just bulldoze mm -hmm. through conversations, get to know your donors, mm -hmm. get to know what motivates them, be partners in the journey. You're illuminating that path for them. So it's a very mm -hmm. noble profession. And on the other side, you know, I say, don't treat your donors of color like mm -hmm. DEI ATMs. Oh, I like it. Because donors of color, black donors, all the above, they're people who have different interests and beautiful characteristics of those individuals. They may like fine art. They may like music. They may like culinary arts. They may like anything. 
Um, so get to know who they are. They probably will support something that's a diversity mm -hmm. initiative or that's being inclusive, but don't just not hit them over the head with, hey, we're doing this. Don't you want to give to it? When you meet them where they are and understand who they are as people, that's a beautiful thing. And again, we get away from that transactional sort of method yeah. and model. So that, that's, that's great, Yolanda. There's a lot to unpack there. Uh, the first thing I really want to make sure our listeners heard is you have your own show as well. Give us the title of that show. What's the name of your show? Um, I have a, a couple of different spaces I inhabit that way. So the one I just mentioned is okay. Meet the Philanthropist where I have conversations with philanthropists and ask them about how they approach their philanthropy or philanthropic professionals who are out there mm. moving and shaking and um, doing the research on millennial donors or, you know, lots of different uh, areas of, of, of um, anal analyzing what's happening in the field. Uh, I have another one called Deconstructing okay. Development, where we break things down in the field for people who are on the other side doing the fundraising. Um, and then with Woke, uh, women of color in fundraising and philanthropy. Um, we are launching something called, well, it's, we have one called views from the C-suite where women of color come who are in the C-suite tell us about their mm. career trajectory. But then we have one, um, that's called woke's the word. Yeah. Haven't you heard woke's the word? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and with that one, we're turning it into what I call the nonprofit uh, view. So I'm kind of like the Whoopi okay. Goldberg and I have co-hosts who are different women of color. And then we have a woman who's a white ally who um, gives us that perspective. And we tackle things like we broached the topic of if Kanye West wanted to give you a million dollars in the midst of all of the um, chaos that he had, would ah, you accept it? Like right, you know, donor right, ethics. Right, right. So. That's tough. That's tough. So, okay. So um, I'm glad you, you laid that out there for our listeners looking so can listen to you and your content in those different spaces. So, so here's a question Thank for you. you. Thank you for asking. So DEI, um, three years ago, mm -hmm. was, you know, everywhere, right? You could close your eyes mm -hmm. and walk down the street and trip over it. You know, every company, organization, were, you know, they were throw, throwing money at it, um, you know, as fast as they could. Today, it seems to almost be like a 180. I was reading an article this morning where... There's a um, DEI director, manager, leader at a university. Seven months into his role, he got notified that that department at that university is being shut down. I've read other articles where uh, universities have been instructed to remove DEI language from their communication. Give me your thoughts on all that. Well, uh, DEI is under attack in the United States and the entire nonprofit and philanthropic sector sectors um, are now, I am part of groups and, and thought leader groups and thought partner groups of everybody that's trying to really unpack this and see what the recent Supreme Court decision against affirmative action, how it's going to trickle down and what it's going to mean. So, of course, in higher education, which is the example that you just gave, it's already there, front and center. They're in the midst of it, trying to navigate it and deal with it. What I will say is, um, as far as higher ed is concerned, I believe that most institutions are still dedicated to the concept of DEI. Uh, the D has become mm. a four-letter word. 
it's the D that's most under attack. So I actually just have a quote that we released called Defending mm. the D. Um, we start with the I because without the I, you can't really have the other letters. Any, you know, there's so many acronyms. There's JEDI, EIDB, IDEA, <laughs> DEI. So um, I think that I, I've seen some very creative, I'm not going to give them away because I, I know that people are, are coming up with different tactics, tactics and strategies to continue to move the work forward. Now, we saw a precursor to this several months ago. I was sitting with the CEO of a major search firm. And I said, I cannot tell if this is malicious or not, but I'm noticing that DEI roles are starting to be restructured. They're not necessarily eliminating them in many instances, but they're moving people around. Um, they're changing it. It's under professional mm. development now. It's under, you name it. Um, it's just somewhere else because what we finally determined is people were trying to protect it. I call it, it's a bit of an underground mm. railroad for diversity, equity, and inclusion of people trying to take it and protect it. Sometimes you have to hide it. Sometimes you have to uh, restructure it, but trying to keep some semblance of it, even though you can't really say that anymore because we're bound now. Uh, and there's a lot of fear, especially when something becomes law that can yeah. start to impact other areas. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that in other areas, it's going to come down to language. It's very much a semantics issue. So we're starting to speak differently instead of necessarily saying DEI, it's fascinating. I just literally like two days ago rewrote something where I, 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 I refuse to go past a certain threshold. Like I'm not going to pretzel and bend myself over backwards to where I just, you know, it, my, I'm sick to my stomach because it's just so wrong that we sure. have to be doing this in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, but you have to play the long game and be smart and be strategic. So we're speaking about it in different ways that will still allow the work to be done, but we'll protect it because that acronym has become such a trigger uh, for certain communities who are communities who are uh, in positions of power and who are attacking it. One quick follow-up comment is, um, you know, in, in terms of, I, I, I agree, and I think it's important not to, as you said, been over like a pretzel trying to you know completely change the, the intent of, of the message and the content what's important is what you just described which is making sure that the frequency that's communicated in is one that will be heard and received well right and so you know you know i i think that's important i was speaking to someone yesterday who said they were telling another another person, it was a black woman who was speaking to a white guy, who said, well, I just had to tell him that white people don't understand black people. And you need to be more understanding of black people. Okay, so in my head, as soon as I heard that message, Yolanda, I'm thinking, I wonder what that white guy heard when you said that. That's what I was thinking, right? So it's all about the message. How do you, how, how do you, how do you, craft the message, right? So it's palatable. So when it's sent and it's received, it, it creates an opportunity for dialogue and inclusion. So I'm glad you share what you shared in terms of, you know, the evolution that's taking place and the importance of, uh, of you know, crafting a little differently here and there as needed. So I'm glad you said that. So. You have to know your audience. That's where it goes back into um, authentic 
performance practice, understanding your audience. And what I have always said, and my theory of change with my company, with all the work I do, and I've had clients from large university systems to corporations to, you know, it's really run the gamut to nonprofit organizations. And you cannot hit people over the head with the work because you have to meet human beings where they are. And so the work cannot be done holistically. It is done individually that impacts the whole. The individual change informs the whole. Change happens at the rate of people and people change systems. I know that's not a quote, but I'm like, could you repeat that verbatim? So for those who are listening, those who are listening, I encourage you rewind that little piece that she said, because that resonates so well, right? In terms of it's not a holistic approach, oh, right? You. It's an individual approach. You can't you can't. When you do it holistically, people get ticked off. I've had I have I've had groups be like, you know what? When I go and, and I train people and somebody will pull me aside and say, I'm so sick of this. I'm sick of hearing about it. That's one of the things, you know, the pendulum swings. We're getting the backlash now. Why do I have to go to five different seminars on it? And then it becomes performative in some places. You know, I checked my box. I gave my gift. Can everything be okay? Um, you know, we started seeing that shift. I started calling it in April 2021 with the advent of the COVID vaccine and the wide availability of the vaccine, the world started to reopen with that golden era for a couple of months there in the spring and summer of 2021. Mm -hmm. And that's really when this pendulum started to, to swing because it was like, oh, isn't it okay now? <laughs> like, do we still have to talk about it? And I'm like, well, imagine if it was your lived experience every day of your life, you know? And there's another quote that to those accustomed to privilege, privilege, equity can seem mm -hmm. like oppression. And so um, I just saw someone do a different take on that with some current events, which I know we don't have to get into, but um, they said to those who have never been accountable, accountability can seem like persecution. Yeah, yeah I could see that. Wow. Well, no, I was wondering, tell me this. It seems like when the George Floyd incident occurred, everyone was in a DEI. Why is it from your experience Every time there's some sort of tragedy, Ahmad or whoever, Tyrese Rice or Ty, whatever, whenever something tragic happens, everyone jumps on the DEI bandwagon. And then it's like, let's wait till the next illogical murder of someone and then we'll bring it back up and then the pendulum goes back the other way. Do you think, is there, from your experience and your perspective, do you think it's changing? Meaning each time we have a tragedy, and the pendulum swings, we pick up a whole bunch of a small percentage of people we didn't have the last time. Then the next tragedy, the, the group of understanders or people who understand our culture or understand diversity inclusion, it just gets better. Is the trend getting better or worse? I guess that's the bottom line question. Well, I think one of the interesting critical junctures that we faced um, with Gosh, isn't it sad that we have too many examples to call upon? Ty Tyree, mm -hmm. um, the young man who was killed like a block from mm -hmm. his mother's house. Mm -hmm. And um, that's when we, that was a whole other thing because that happened, what, a few months after the mass shooting with um, the Chinese um, Lunar mm -hmm. New Year holiday. Um, and 
that's when we took a step back and we actually did a whole program on this for allies in action. How do you process when you're starting to become desensitized to it? Because then it starts to become this weird form of entertainment. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I was upset when that happened because I wasn't ready to see that footage. Um, I walked into the living room and my partner was watching it and with his dad. And I was just like, Oh, wish, wish you would have told me that you had that on. Cause mm-hmm. I wasn't ready for that. Mm-hmm. I needed some more time to process. I needed to not be, um, you know, my autonomy had been taken from me in a sense, because I didn't want to see another black man be murdered like that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, people were really twisted in knots about that. Do I want to see this? Mm-hmm. How do we process it? That was a critical turning point because does it become, Oh, well, just another one that happened. Um, but it ups the ante because this one's even worse. And the tragedy factor gets upped because he was calling out for his mother and was just down the street from her house. And again, because it didn't need to happen the way that it happened. It shouldn't have happened at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that there's an issue, you know, just like the other term. And I don't know if I should now say you gotta say it. Air, right. But in the <laughs> you nonprofit gotta say it. You gotta sector, say it. <laughs> No, but there's there's the concept of Mm -hmm. poverty porn. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like all the poor children, all the poor, the poor people. And I can I get, you know, I've gone through this even with with clients and with different people. Oh, we need more pictures of the impoverished people on there so that donors understand better. And I'm like, ah, how about we show them? One, so they get where people are coming from. Why don't we share a success story instead? You know, so people don't wallow in all of the negative. So I think that it's um, a very loaded answer uh, where I think that's a a real consideration there is how much are we seeing? How desensitized are we seeing Mm -hmm. are becoming to it? And is it just another one in a long list where people then feel bad until the next news cycle? Yeah. Um, and then it sort of just goes out of their head because it's actually becoming the norm. Yeah, It's part of our culture. So how do we make sure that that doesn't happen, right? So I I think that with DEI, um, yeah, you know, in 2020, my goodness, every single organization had a statement on their website. Um, I started Allies because I had so many white allies getting in touch with me saying, Yolanda, what do I do? Mm -hmm. And... um, it's gone on from there. Everybody had a task force or a committee or a DEI this or that, a working group. And now it's about accountability and what did you do? What change did you actually make in your workplace? What change did you make in your life? Because you can't leave this at work either. It has to go, you know, when you leave the office or you log off from working at home, the way you live your life has to reflect these principles of equity and inclusion and diversity as well and helping people belong. And I think that that's a compartmentalization that has happened as well. Um, and I don't have the answer. We, we actually did a whole session and had a therapist wow. and um, some a clergy and some different people come help. Like, how do we process this? How do you protect yourself? Mm-hmm. Uh, we called it digital disturbance, digital disturbance. <laughs> because when you have all these, images thrown at you, you don't want that to become normal. It should still be just as sickening. You know, it makes me go back uh, to Emmett Till. Mm -hmm. Around the same time that that happened with Tyree Nichols, um, I watched the movie Till. 
And I actually thought that should have had a different warning on it because I didn't know they were going to. Did you see that movie? No, because I was afraid it would have that type of content. Oh, it showed it. It showed. I was like, what? But you know what? I get it. And she needed to. I wish that it had a flag or something on it to have prepared me for it Mm. because I took. It was weeks. So add that to walking into the living room and seeing the footage mm, of that happening. Yeah. I had a rough like couple of months, but I understood mm. even better why that was the turning point for the modern civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. People sure. got ticked off when they saw sure. that they were like, no, enough is enough. We have to take action. And that was that real turning point is seeing that young man be murdered the way that he was. But it was rough. So I just, I'll give you that warning. Watch it. I think it should be watched, but okay. I, I was like, whew. <laughs> it was a lot. Well, okay. tell me this. I want to switch gears just a little bit. You talked about the women of color. Tell us about that. Is that mm-hmm. women of color, say African-American women, India, Indian women, Hispanic women, white women? Or is it, is it just like the Benetton, the young people? It's like the clothing brand. Of all colors, is that what that is? <laughs> Whoa, you took us way back. <laughs> talk, talk, talk about <laughs> aging yourself. <laughs> yeah, my daughter was like, Daddy, what's Benetton? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for the, those that are like 40 under, they're like, Benetton, what is that? What are you talking about? <laughs> oh my goodness. Yes, it's all of the above. Uh, I was the first black president of an organization in New York. Um, that, um, you know, that was a big diversity milestone, women in development. And uh, in its 40-year history, we were like, really the first in New York City? Um, Yeah, that was the case. And so we launched a diversity and inclusion task force. The report came out like two weeks before George Floyd. And so it was very timely. I was already doing the work. I was already in the DEI space, but you can't make up that momentum. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I realized that there had to be places for us all to come together because we need allies and we need people to to be in our corner. But we still needed a space for the very distinct and unique lived experience of women of color in the philanthropic and nonprofit sectors. And so I created that space. Because the other thing that we have to do is learn about each other and get away from the scarcity mindset. Mm -hmm. Um, that there's not enough for my group and therefore I need to take from you. We need to get away from that whole Asian model minority, which tries to turn them against black people. We see that happening now with the Mm -hmm. affirmative action Mm -hmm. um, decision. Mm -hmm. So I was like, we need a space that's safe enough to be honest about those things so that we can tackle the scarcity mindset between our different groups while celebrating what each group brings to the table. So it's a beautiful um, mix of black women of all backgrounds. We've got people, AAPI, we have everybody represented, Native American, um, of course, Latina. So it's, it's really been a pivotal sort of thing. And it took off like wildfire, you know, across the country and even internationally. I'll be over in the UK in wow. October. Um, at a university in Ireland, talking to them about race relations and DEI and equity in Ireland. And we'll be in London at the London School of Economics because that's a whole wow. other different um, aspect of the diaspora, you know, of uh, yeah, what yeah. they faced. So we're everywhere and we're all wow. different backgrounds because divided we fall. And a lot of people have been trying to divide us so that we couldn't move forward. And so now we're trying to think differently. When you, when you travel outside of the U.S. and say I'm in 
Senegal and I say, well, what's going on with race relations in the US or you're in Australia or you're in the UK or even Ireland? What do you find is the most perplexing question of their understanding of what we're really going through in the US? Because they're on the outside looking in and you're in the inside going out and they're like, well, why do they do, why did the police hate black people? When I was working in Europe, they just couldn't understand why do the police keep killing the black people and why do they kill them unarmed? Why do they release a dog when they're on their knees? They just can't understand the mindset of, of that. Do you get those sort of questions or what do you find from a professional perspective when you speak to people outside of the US looking in? Well, one of the most dangerous things that people are starting to say is, oh, DEI is an American thing. Oh. And so that is not the case because you asked me that question, I can flip that right on its head and say, hey, what about Windrush Brits? Yeah. Uh, everybody has something just because of the history of the world and of the Western world and of colonialism. You know, mm. there are issues afoot everywhere. You know, yeah, you could ask the folks in Senegal what's happening with their, mm-hmm. um, you know, current administration and political climate. You know, mm. everybody could ask everybody another question about things and help them to be more introspective and take a look at themselves. Um, you know, what was it that would Jesus say? You get the plank in your eye. <laughs> so, big, you know, you're looking at talking to somebody else about it, but you don't see the big chunk of wood in your own eye. So mm. I think that when we have and, you know, it's not necessarily malicious or, or negative when they ask those questions, but sometimes they're just like, oh, what's going on over there? You guys need to get it together. And we're like, we do need to get it together. Um, and and what's going on? You know, mm-hmm. how does this relate? It's not just something that's in the United States. Mm-hmm. It, it's not just a concept that is uniquely American. Um, mm-hmm. And it's something where I hope that when you ask that question, something about it resonates with you, where you'll try to help make change in your own community and maybe you'll support an initiative that's happening in America. Mm-hmm. That compartmentalization, that xenophobia, that nationalism, negative nationalism, uh, where we separate ourselves and try to be an island uh, doesn't work. So we, it's all hands on deck when it comes to, to being more inclusive and to stopping violence against people of color. Yolanda, I wish we had two hours to spend. <laughs> That's how I was like, get, get away from us. But a couple quick questions before we uh, transition forward here. One is August. August is a significant month. And it, was, it relates to, to philanthropy. Talk yeah. to us about that. August is Black Philanthropy Month. And uh, this is a concept that's been around for decades. I uh, just had a, a really poignant, important conversation with the founder of it, Jock- Dr. Jacqueline uh, Copeland. I think she's in Brazil right now. To your point, Kevin, um, talking to black folks in Brazil mm-hmm. about you know the different issues that they face there and how we bring it's a it's a global movement it's not just it's it's black philanthropy month and she very very much made a concerted effort to connect black people from people of african descent around the world to understand each other's issues and understand how we've always been generous and how we continue to be generous together so it's a a really interesting concept that way uh that segs very well from what we just talked about with people around the world. So it's a global movement, but in the United States, of course, it celebrates um, black philanthropy. And one of the other things that woke my organization tries to do is 
dismantle the philanthropist archetype of being the wealthy white man or the wealthy white woman to understanding that if you tithed and your grandma tithed and she took pies over to somebody else's house after church, um, you know, whatever it is, however you were generous, you're a philanthropist and your name mm. need not be etched in the walls of great institutions to be called a philanthropist. Um, to embrace that term and not feel otherized as though we were doing something else with our generosity. So when you start to unpack that and look at how generous we've been for hundreds of years, um, it's a point of pride. And so you see philanthropy differently. When you're being generous, you're being philanthropic. You may not have a million dollar check, but that $200 that you gave to the YWCA or to the links or whatever, you know, it is for a project that they were working on. Yeah. Um, that's philanthropy. Love and it. and we've it. got the folks too that are given the million dollars. So let's celebrate them also. Yeah. Well, that's great. Cause I donated, uh, I want to say it was like five, it might've been $10 yesterday. So I guess like, I could call myself. You are a philanthropist today and embrace that. Seriously, take that with you because that $10 is yeah. going to help someone. You were philanthropic. Philanthropy is the love of mankind. It's the love of each other. And uh, it doesn't mean that it takes, you know, the kids with the lemonade stand that want to go give that money to help somebody else. It's philanthropy. Yeah. So, Smiley, I hope you spend that $10 wisely. Well, that I uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the one thing is... No, but see, I love that you said that really quick. I love that you said that too. Because people are also starting to look at mutual aid as philanthropy mm. as well within communities, especially the black and Hispanic communities are saying, you know what? When I gave my cousin rent money, <laughs> yeah. that was philanthropy too. Cause they kept them out of the street and they went to work and they contributed to society. Yeah. Tell me this from the numbers perspective, cause the math is the same and the data is the same. Would you rather have one person give 1 million or a hundred people, a million people give a dollar on the same date, which is, can I guess? Can I guess what the answer yes. would be, Yolanda? And tell me, yeah. Can I guess what the answer would be? <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna because... guess. I'm gonna guess you'd rather have a million people give a dollar versus one person give a million. And and I and I have a reason. You want to hear my reason why? And you can Go tell me. Go for it. Yeah. Why. Well, so in my mind, right? If you have a community working together to lift, you know, to lift the group, it's more advantageous because. After that first giving, there'll be other gestures. Mm -hmm. It may not be money, but they're in some in some way, they'll be working together going forward. That's just my theory. I could be completely wrong. So, what's the right answer, Yolanda? <laughs> yes, it plants a seed. Um, I think that would be beautiful to have a million people giving a dollar each. But listen, when it comes to fundraising, don't get me wrong here because it is about the bottom line. Mm -hmm. And when you're trying to raise the dollars, all fundraisers have goals that they need to meet. So in this uh, hypothetical situation, I'm going to take both. I'm taking two million. <laughs> and I'm going like, to be... <laughs> <million. laughs> take the two million. And I'm going to say thank you to the million people. And I'm going to continue to support you and cultivate you and help you feel like the philanthropist you are. And to the one million person, thank you very much. I love it. <laughs> and that's why you have a PhD in fundraising. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. 
So, so here's here's another question for you. And Smiley, do you have? Do you no, have a that was great. You, I you love said? your answer. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So, so here's here's another question. So, you're in a bit of a unique area, right? Unique space. You know, di di philanthropy, that sort of thing. And other other people that are like life coaches, those that are like uh, Tim Robbins, you know, like you know, or others that are like I can teach you how to make a million dollars. People trip over themselves to hear the content. They sit at the edge of their seats at their workshops and, you know, they they want more. When you're done, they're like, please, can I speak to you for 20 minutes? In your space, it's a little different because that's not necessarily the case. I'm guessing most of the time when you're sharing your knowledge and your wisdom, unless someone, you know, unless it's like a specific small group, what keeps you motivated? What keeps you inspired and passionate about what you do? I believe that this is my place in the world and that I'm fulfilling part of my purpose in doing it. Um, and that's why I fight so hard to get away from that transactional method and model so that people are working with people and uh, fulfilling the missions of different organizations and guiding people that have the resources to support things because that's how we're really, it's people that are going to change systems and get the work going. Now, I will say I do hold a unique space in the sector um, because I am very blessed to be able to deliver many keynotes throughout the year and trainings and be in front of large audiences. And I do get those people coming up to me afterwards. I didn't teach That's them great. how to make a million dollars, but you know, there may have been a concept or something that they walked away with. I always say, you know, either a concrete step or a seed planted in the right direction, whatever it is. And I've had clients come back to me months later who were a little miffed about having to do different trainings or be in certain spaces, you know, and then they were like, actually, now I understand the role that I play. Mm -hmm. And I know you're not engaged with us anymore. <laughs> and we're, you know, we're not paying you, but can I talk to you about this? Because mm -hmm. I actually realize a change that I can make. And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And when I see, you know, with woke, we have the woke awards that happen every June. We just had that in New York. Um, we honor an early career person, a young professional, a mid-career person, and then someone who's really just um, the award for excellence. And this year, so I can shout out these ladies, um, we did the Renee Cutting from the U.S. the Fund for UNICEF. Mm -hmm. And she used to be okay. at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. She's, you know, she and I met around Thurgood Marshall's table talking about how to bring fundraisers of color together. Um, wow. Marilyn Alexander with our Shine Award. She's at New York Presbyterian. And, uh, and Megan Saretza McManus, who is at John Jay College of Justice, all really just moving the work forward. And so that's what keeps me inspired also. Those, they had me in tears just, you know, because when you create something like a community like Woke, um, I, I stand back a lot of the time and just, you know, you, you watch it happen because you can't dictate what happens. And that's my happy place is standing back and watching those women of color come together and be excited and be inspired by each other and know what their next thing is that they're going to try to do their next goal um, and workshop a difficult conversation that they have to have. That's where it's at. And so I think back and I'm like, that's exactly why I did this. That's why I do this. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So uh, we're going to ease into the final four. Here's the first question here. It's not, it's not the first final four question. This is the transition question. Okay. What's one thing that people don't know about you? 
Oh. That you, w- that you wish they knew. Hmm. What do people not know about me? I feel like I'm on the fi- the family feud. Like, <laughs> <laughs> the final round. And I'm like, I just got the err because I took That's too right. long. Can we, right, right. can we come back to that one? Sure, sure. sure. Okay. We'll come back to it. Awesome. We'll come back to it. Okay. Because well, people, kind of, people know me. I'm pretty transparent. So I'm like, what do people know? <laughs> well, okay. here, we'll here's one. Um, the first final four question is, um, if you could have dinner, Anyone with anyone alive or dead, and you have four chairs at the table, you're in one seat, three other members are at your table, alive or dead. Who would you want to have dinner with, and why? How many people do I get to pick? Three, okay. Uh, Jesus, number one, (laughs) black Jesus or white Jesus. Don't get you started. Is that what you think? You're allowed to. Don't get you started. (laughs) You got a preacher's kid here too. (laughs) You know what? (laughs) You know what? We'd all be like, "Whoops!" Um, Just, just Jesus. Jesus. Okay, just Jesus. Um, So we got Jesus. We got. um, Oh goodness. Um, I guess I'd have to bring it down to Madam Walker, Madam C.J. Walker. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Uh, just to talk to her about her whole, we're having her great, great granddaughter come and she wrote a book that's the Netflix series is based on. So our book club with woke is going to be talking to her about a lot of that and learning so much about what they did to support opera and, and the arts, Mm. you know, like black people in the arts. Um, and then, gosh, I guess, so I'm going to, oh, I know. So it's a tie between her and Florence Price, who's a black woman composer who did the first symphony that was um, premiered in the United States because um, wow. of everything she went through, escaping Jim Crow, had to come north mm. to be able to create her music. Um, and then, Okay. People are going to be surprised. Maybe this answers your question. What do people not know? Uh, there it is. <laughs> uh, I would have Marie Antoinette. Marie Antoinette. Ah, okay. Because I think she is the biggest scapegoat in history. And mm. I think so many like politics and gender politics and all the different things um, that came into play around her. Uh, I think that she was very much misunderstood and scapegoated um, was very people who lose their heads can't tell their side of the story and so history has told such a side to her story that I have found isn't necessarily um, true and I find that to be fascinating how you can still be such a villain and a de- like a divisive character hundreds of years later awesome great great all right all right what's been your greatest success my greatest success uh I would have to say it's woke. Mm. Just creating that space and to see what it's become um, and to see the impact that it's had, that they people will tell me it's had on their lives and careers. Uh, so that's been pretty great. Followed a close second by a music composition that I created um, called Shout for Joy that um, was just re-performed, represented a week, two weeks ago. Um, and that was pretty cool. Congratulations. 
Do you get a chance to sing often? I do. Great. Yeah, Great. you know, I, I um, and I have an album of spirituals. I specialize in spirituals in the Underground Railroad, um, and all the hidden meanings and covert meanings behind spirituals and that lived experience of the enslaved Africans and just imagining what that was like, you know, and. That wasn't that long ago. So I want to remind people as we go and we see these very problematic and shady things happening around laws and people trying to overturn things. I mean, just think of what our parents and grandparents, I think of my grandfather, rest his soul. um, I think of him sometimes and how his brother, you know, they were in a sundown town in Oklahoma um, Mm. and stayed too late one night and had to leave and flee for fear of being lynched. And then that makes me think of Emmett Till. And I'm like, this stuff didn't happen that long ago. So we have to definitely stay the course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the name of the album and where our listeners can get it, if they're interested. Feel the spirit. Feel the spirit. Okay. Um, they can get it wherever music is sold. It's on Amazon. It's all, it's all over the place. There are no more albums. How good, is it, how, good is it, how good does it feel to say that? You can buy it wherever music is sold. It that's, feels great. That's that awesome. was That was really a labor of love. And yeah. um, and I'm really proud of it. And, and I'm happy to share that music with people. And yeah, find it and, and listen to it. And I have a, awesome. a concert lecture that I do around that called The Spirituals Experience. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Here's a third question. What is your superpower? Superman has his strength. He can fly. Wonder Woman, she has an invisible jet. And the Flash is really fast. What is Yolanda's superpower? My superpower would be bringing people together, convening people in a meaningful way, and helping them to understand the role that they play in and, and good work that needs to be done. Awesome. Nice. So if you were to write your life's story, what would the title, what would the title of your autobiography be? Crafting a life. Crafting a life. Oh, you clearly thought <laughs> <Yeah>. about this. <laughs> People keep asking me when I'm going to write my book. And I'm like, <laughs> awesome, well, Yolanda. Crafting a life because that's what I call it. You know, I do. I, it seems people are like, "Well, you do a lot of stuff," and I'm actually like, actually, I see it just on two different paths that connect and seg. And and I want to do what I want to do. Maybe that's my superpower also is being hyper efficient in a way that allows me to do what I want to be doing. See, I, I thought you were going to say your superpower is your voice uh, because of the ah. opera and the spirituals and the Speaking. singing, but. But it's all wrapped and embodied into one. So that's that's a craft. It is. It, it's, in, it's in crafting the life. I think my superpower, actually, I guess I, I would articulate it that way, is it's that um, I find a way to fulfill the different areas of my purpose. Because I used to have a bit of an identity crisis around it all. Mm. Like, oh, do I do this or do I do that? And when people Google me and then the philanthropy people see the music and the music people see the philanthropy, do they get confused? And I'm like, you know what, everybody? This is me. It's one person. All of the above. This is so cool in the sense that if you're the second one where this happened to us, we had a guest on. Yeah. This lady, we found it was a, she was a doctor of astrophysicist and I saw her on the Discovery Channel. And when we invited her on, she said we were the first one to invite her on for her science and her technology. Whereas she's a jazz singer in London. And we didn't even know she was a jazz oh. singer. And with you, it's the same. See? I didn't know you were an opera singer until I read your bio because 
I just saw your your DEI stuff with LinkedIn. I was like, oh, she sounds interesting. But once again, you, people are so, it's like a quilt. They have so many different nuances of themselves that make them all totally beautiful and comprehensively amazing. Yeah. So I want to thank you first for responding to my LinkedIn, second for being here, and third for making me feel like I'm a philanthropist because I get five, $10 all the time, <laughs> but I never thought I was a philanthropist. <laughs> Hey, I'm going to tell my daughter, I'm going to tell my daughter right now, you may be a philanthropist. <laughs> you are a philanthropist. That is right. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's been great having you on. Um, you know, like, like Smiley was saying earlier, you know, what we don't have, all of our guests are unique. All of them are unique. And we just enjoy hearing these stories from everyday people that are living extraordinary lives. You know, um, keep doing the work you're doing. Um, we look forward to having you back on, of course. Of course, I'd get, love to be. Thanks get, for get, get the book done, the autobiography. <laughs> we'll see, we'll see, get the book done. We'll definitely look like to have you back on. So, Well, thank yeah. you. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to be here. You, you are a delight to, to speak with both of you. 